All right. Let's go back to your homework. We're talking about the deity of Christ, Kevin. We have some homework questions. Uh, world number six. Passages like 1 Corinthians 8, verse 6, say there is but one God. And this is the art, this is the, uh, a Watchtower Witness argument, or a Christadelphian argument. That rules out the Son also being God, because the Bible says there's one God. What about that, Dan? Okay. And, and that actually is a passage, one of my affirmative arguments I used that I hadn't brought up yet, and that's right. Again, in a debate format, uh, it's very important that we, uh, when they make an argument, to show passages that contradict what they say this verse means. And, and the uh, reasoning there, of course, is that we can't have the Bible contradicting itself. But also it's important is we have to tell the meaning for that passage and why it doesn't mean what they're saying. Do you have, uh, in other words, so the argument is the Bible says there's one God. Why doesn't that rule out Jesus as being God? Not, not that that's not a good answer. That is a good answer, but we have to do both parts. Otherwise, if we don't do both parts, we're just doing what we accuse the denomination of doing, of pitting one passage against another. Like, if we say, baptism is necessary for salvation, Mark 16, 16, they say, oh no, John 3, 16 says, all they're doing, instead of explaining Mark 16, they just, Mark 16, 16, they just pit one passage against another. Why doesn't 1 Corinthians 8, verse 6, mean, rule out Jesus as being God, when it says there's one God? I know you guys know the answer. You may, it just uh, might be you're, you're not thinking that, uh, you can't read my mind to know what I'm looking for. <laughs> Let me, look, let me pull up a chart if I can get these uh, charts to work and show you how I respond to that argument. Well, I remember that, If you read the passage, uh, there's one God, and then he says, the Father, of whom are all things, and we for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom all things are through whom we live. There's all these, when he says one God, he lists two things after that passage. Yeah, and remember though, keep in mind that Lord doesn't mean God. Lord just means master or boss. Uh, here's how I would, uh, here's how I responded. Here's some passages, examples where the Bible that says there's one God. And I think the question refers to 1 Corinthians 8 verse 6. Now, and just like Dennis is saying, 1 Corinthians 8 verse 6, it says, one God the Father and one Lord Jesus Christ. Yet, about the Father, Mark 12 says, the Lord, our God, is one Lord. Now, that's about the Father, according to the Christadelphians and the Watchtower folks. This is talking about the Father. They would agree with that. The Lord, our God, is one Lord. Now, how come, how could that be? This says one Lord, and Jesus, yet the Father is also called Lord. Does that make two Lords? Does that mean the Bible contradicts itself? No, because when we say one Lord Jesus Christ, we don't mean to rule out another person in the Godhead. That's not what the Bible is intending to do. It's ruling out all other lords or gods, as we talked about, like the idols and things like that. Not ruling out another person in the Godhead. So it would be the same thing with God. When the Bible says about the Father that there is one God, that's not intending to rule out Jesus as being God any more than one Lord rules out the Father being Lord. Now here's Father and Son are both called Lord in this passage. It's in Matthew 22. It's a quote from Psalm 10.1. That passage is quoted perhaps more than any other Old Testament passage. It says, The Lord said unto my Lord. 
So there's obviously two different lords. That's God the Father talking to Jesus Christ, even though that says there's one Lord. So my notice about them is there is one God or one Lord as opposed to false deities or lords. There is one God or Godhead which consists of Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. The one God or one Lord contrasts are never meant to rule out the other two individuals in the one Godhead. Any points you want to make before we move on? Next question. Question number seven on your homework. And this is really almost exactly the same as the last argument. Almost the same. If Jesus is God, why doesn't that mean that there are two gods? And I think based upon what Greg has taught us in Mormonism, they would say there's two gods. They say God the Father. I mean, of course, they say there are many gods. But within our world, there are two, three gods. God, Father, God the Son, God the Holy Ghost, making three gods. That's what the Mormons would say. Suppose the Christadelphians or the Watchtower folks said, well, if you believe Jesus is God, deity, then that would mean there are two gods. Do you say you're stuffed in the car? First John 5, what? Okay, that's what you quoted the other day? I like that passage. And it, it, that passage is very good again on the Godhead question. One caveat I want to tell you about First John 5, 7 is that that is not in the manuscript that the Bible, the uh, text, like the American Standard, the New American Standard come from. It's, this is the most, uh, one of the most highly questioned verses in the Bible. Do you all know what I mean by that? But Bob would be much better qualified to talk to you about that. Mark 16, 9 through 16 is another one. This is the most question. John 8, where the, uh, the, uh, the woman called in adultery, that's not in some of, the, some of those texts. So you have basically two different texts. I call one the majority text. That's where you get the family of the translations like the King James from the New King James. Then you have another one that is, we might call it the Nestle's text. Different people call it different things. That's where you get the American Standard, the New American Standard, like that. And the advantages and disadvantages to me, I'm an unlearned person, but the, the, the arguments for the two different ones go like this. The text that the King James comes from, the people that really advocate that say, it's from a better text because there's so many more of them. The ones that the American Standard comes from, they say, that's the better text because they're older. The two, maybe two or three out of the four oldest ones, it's either two out of three or three out of four oldest ones, the very oldest, there are not very many of these Greek manuscripts, but they're the oldest ones. So they took those and then looked at them and compared and made a manuscript. Okay? It got text. But it, it, they never just took one and copied it. They took these Greek manuscripts and then made a text. And then they translated that text. And I'll explain in a moment what, what I mean by making a text. With the King James Version, they might have a hundred of these guys. But many of them were only five or six hundred years old instead of going way back. You follow what I'm saying? And then they looked at all those and compared them and made a text. Now, I myself think, this is just my unlearned opinion, I like the majority text and the advocates of that better. At least what they say about it. Because what you do, if you have a thousand Greek texts, how can you determine the truth when they're different? Well, it's because... If one of them is different here, but the other 999 have it the same, then you know that mistake, the one that's different, is wrong. Because where did we get all these texts? Because these guys who were monks were copying, and they didn't have their machines, and they had a Greek text, and they would copy it, and that's how we have these many texts. And we may not have the one he copied from. Let's say a thousand different guys copied this guy, 
and I've made a thousand things, and now we have those thousand they copied. We don't have the original. How can we tell what the original is? But all those guys would have made mistakes, but it's not likely there would be more, maybe more than one or two mistakes in the very same place in the copying error. So you can tell what the errors are. With the American Standard Version, yes, they're older, and there's an advantage of being older, but they're very few comparatively, and so it's harder. If you only have five and you have two mistakes at the same place, you're kind of, it's like three to two, which what's right. But anyway, in the Netflix text, I may have that name wrong, the text that the American Standard comes from, it doesn't have First John 5 or 7. It's a very highly questioned passage. Talk to Bob about that. He knows 100% more than I do on that. It may be worth entertaining uh, to say, let's just assume for the moment that it certainly isn't, and obviously it isn't, but somebody would disagree, and that was their defense. It would be interesting to see if they would admit that it was in the Bible, would it matter? Right. Mm-hmm. I, it's never come up in any of my debates, but when I've debated the baptism issue, sometimes Mark 16, 9 through 16 will come up. And I don't let them dismiss that with an argument, without an argument, because I have, in my charts, I believe I have a lot of evidence. Uh, I didn't come up with the evidence, of course. I just assembled it onto a chart. A lot of evidence showing that Mark 16, 9 through 16 is genuine. So, but, but I've never had to worry about 1 John 5, 7. I just wanted to bring it to your attention that even though that is good on this question, that it is a very highly disputed verse. Yeah. Another one that you may hear about is where uh, the eunuch said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God in Acts 8, 37. If you turn to the American Standard Version, it won't be in there either. See. Okay, if Jesus is God, why does it that mean there are two gods? Alright. Now, do y'all know what the Godhead question is with the one that's been accomplished? Alright, they don't think, uh, they agree with us Jesus is deity. All right. They're not like these guys we're examining in our class today and yesterday. All right. What they believe is that Jesus is the, is, is the only person in the Godhead. It, the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost is Jesus. There's only one person in the Godhead. All right. I think it was one of the classes, maybe Eric, uh, he was pointing out about the, uh, it may have been Greg, but I think it was Eric, uh, the baptism and how that Jesus was there being baptized, the Holy Spirit. Uh, was there in the form of a dove, and then the Father spoke, and there's three. And I mentioned something about the one that's Pentecostals, and Eric said, yeah, I wonder how they would explain that, Pat. And he said, but don't go there now. He knew we might get a long discussion that was off the subject. The way they explain that is, is that the, God the Father is simply the, the spirit of Jesus, and God the Son is simply the physical body. That, now, this makes me sort of laugh. I'm not trying to defend their position, but they say that's the spirit of Jesus talking to the body of Jesus. Or talk from when he was baptized. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. But anyway, when I when I talk about this Godhead question, they want to. I've been to many debates on the Godhead because one of my debate friends is Tommy Thrasher, and he debates it. I, I don't. I decline to debate the Godhead question, three persons or one, because I don't think it's necessarily important that we understand how God can be three in one. I don't understand it completely myself. I don't even understand how my spirit dwells in my body. The Bible says we have spirit, right? Well, how's it in there? Well, is it in my brain? Well, so what part of the brain is it in? I don't know how it's in there. They doesn't keep me from believing it, right? Okay. I don't understand where heaven is exactly. Where did Jesus go when he ascended up in heaven? Well, is it in outer space somewhere? Well, I don't know. But I don't have to understand that to believe that it exists, that it is a place where God is, right? 
Okay. So likewise, I don't completely understand how God can be three in one. But I still believe it anyway, because the Bible teaches it. Just like I don't understand these things completely, but I still believe them because the Bible teaches them, I don't understand necessarily how God can be three in one, because we can't think of a perfect analogy that we understand in physical space. I still believe it. But for your consideration, I, I guess I like the egg illustration. It's been used by preachers a number of times. There are three parts of an egg. But any one part of that egg can be called egg. For example, somebody could just give you the yolk for breakfast. And somebody asked you what you had for breakfast, you could still say, I had egg. You know, even though the white and the shell wasn't there. Or somebody could feed, give you just the white and you still say, I had egg. So since the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all three of them are deity, then if you're just talking about one of them, what would you call it? You still have to call it God, right? They're deity. You couldn't call it non-deity just because it's part of the Godhead. If one God or one Godhead and the three parts, if you look at any part of that one Godhead by itself, and they do act uh, distinctly, three, uh, we usually say three different persons, you would still call it God the same way you would still say, if you ate the yolk, you would say, you'd call it egg. You, could, you wouldn't say, well, that's not egg, you know, just because it didn't have the whites there. And so that, that's how I responded to that argument. Just because God, the Father is God, and Jesus is God, and the Holy Spirit is God, that doesn't make three God any more than the fact that you can call the yolk egg and the white egg make two eggs. All right, anything else? And the next one is also related to that one. The last question, Jesus is, the, this is their argument, Jesus is the Son of God, not God. Any did y'all come up with any response to that? He's not the God. He's not God. He's the Son of God. Okay. I, the first thing I took with that was that was actually the, the text in Isaiah. And I said, No, Jesus was born in the flesh. And he called himself the Son of God. But we know that in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, he is to be called an animal. The Son of God is to be called Emmanuel. Mm-hmm. And Emmanuel is God among us. In Matthew 1. Right. We went over that passage yesterday. Matthew 1 after that, because Matthew 1 quotes Isaiah 7.14. So, if the name given to the Son of God is God among us, therefore the conclusion I have to draw is that that he is God among us. Okay, that's a good point. Very good point. When, when, when I say I am the son of a human, Ken Donahue, here's what that implies. I am not Ken Donahue, that's the name of my dad, who's passed away. But it does mean I am human. So when we say Jesus is the son of God, when the Bible says that, that means that Jesus, and that's talking about the son of God the Father, right? That does prove that Jesus is not God the Father, because you're not the son of yourself. But it doesn't prove that Jesus himself is not also deity. For example, when I say I'm the son of Ken Donahue, that proves I'm not Ken Donahue, but actually instead of proving I'm not a human like Ken Donahue, it actually proves I am a human like Ken Donahue. If you're the son of something, if you're speaking literally, you have to be of the same species. You see what I'm saying? The point I did the other day was really good, is that you are the son of Donahue, but you're still a Donahue. So it doesn't change that. Right. You're not your father. I'm not Ken Donahue, but I am a Philodonahue. 
Now, we say we're the children of God. When we become a Christian, we become a child of God, but that's not literal. That's spiritual children. Okay? But think of this. Jesus is more than just the spiritual child of God the Father. He is the literal child of God the Father. He's, he's, he's the son of God in a more literal sense than we are. We are only sons of God in the sense that we follow God, we imitate God. We can be sons of the devil because we lie, right? Is that John 8 maybe? Where does it say that? Because he's the father of all liars. It doesn't mean we're literally his son. It means we're his son because we follow what he teaches. I'm my son, my, I, I'm my dad's son, we could say, in that way, if I follow the way he brought me up. But I'm also literally his son, even if I never follow the way he brought me up, because I'm literally his son. And so actually when it says Jesus is the son of God, it's not saying it's the same sense that it says we are the son of God. It's literally. And what does that prove about him if he's literally the son of God? He has to be God. The literal son of a monkey is not a man. Just tease about the evolution theory for a moment. You see what I'm saying? The literal son of a monkey is not a man. The literal son of God would have to be God. Now, I'm not talking about a spiritual son of God like we are, but literal son of God. We know that the Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary, and she can see. There was a, he's the literal son. So let's look for a moment at that passage. Just Well, we'll come to that in a minute. Let's look at some more affirmative charts before we close this study out. Titus chapter 2, verse 13. It says, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now look at that. What does it call Jesus Christ there? First of all, it calls him the Savior. What else does it call him? Yeah, it does. Now think about this. Sometimes this could be talking about two different persons. We're looking for the great God. So they might say the Christadelphian or the watchtower person say that's God the Father. And Jesus Christ. So they're looking for two different people. Now that's perfectly good grammatically. But in this case it won't work because this is talking about we're looking for the glorious appearing. In other words, the second coming. And God the Father is not coming back. They're looking looking for the glorious appearing of God the Father and Jesus Christ? No. They're just looking for the glorious appearing of the Son, Jesus Christ. So this great God, these are just two appellations for the same person here. You see then how they call Jesus Christ, the great God? The New King James Version, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. The American Standard, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Do you understand my point on how because it's talking about his appearing? This has to be two different names for the same person instead of talking about two different persons. Now these last two charts, I think, I'm not going to say they're the strongest. Perhaps John 1 1 is, or maybe something else, but they're, they're high up on my list. If I only had five minutes to try to convince somebody, I'd probably bring these arguments up. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8, I think one of you guys have already mentioned that in one of our classes. It says, But unto the Son, and so not God the Father there, but unto the Son he saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. Let's look at some other translations in the New King James Version. But to the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. In the ASV, but of the Son, he says, thy throne, O God. In ASV, but of the Son, he says, thy throne, O God. In NIV, about the Son, he says, your throne, O God. Not only is the Son called God here, but he's called God by God the Father. And one other point, remember the Christadelphians don't believe that Jesus even existed in any shape, form, or fashion before he was born of Mary? This is actually talking about something done in the past. 
God the Father called God the Son God long before he was born of Mary. This is actually a quote from Psalm 45, verse 6. It seems to me to be pretty strong that he called, that it's not just anybody calling him God, it's God the Father calling him God and long before he was ever born of Mary. Questions or comments? And then the last chart on this topic that I plan to go through. This is the one Dan mentioned earlier. John 20, 28, doubting Thomas, as we call him, he answered and said to him, after he saw, felt, I guess he touched the nail prints in his hand, he says, my Lord and my God. Now remember, Lord doesn't mean God. Lord means boss. So the Christadelphians, the Watchtower folks, really believe that Jesus is just Lord. That's really what they believe. That he was just a great man. And the boss, he, he, you know, they claim that he's their boss. Uh, Christadelphian, I think that means lovers of Christ. No, 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 no. Philadelphia means, Philly is a Greek word for love. What does Delphi mean? Maybe followers, disciples or followers, I'm not sure. Hmm? What does Philadelphia mean? Brotherly love. City of brotherly love. So the Christadelphians may mean brothers of Christ. Okay. The Philo is the love. The Delphian is the brother. So the Christadelphians, that means brothers of Christ. So they're saying they're brothers of Christ. <clears throat> but they would say Christ is their Lord, their boss. And so would the Watchtower folks. But that's all he is. He's not God. Now some will say, oh, well, that's just Thomas. He's not inspired. Well, the passage you just looked at, God the Father called him God. But let's look and see if this Thomas just made this claim he's not really right. You know, he said, my Lord and my God. And what did Jesus say to him? Jesus said to him, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. But blessed are those who don't see me and yet believe. It sounds like Jesus is approving of what he said. He's not disapproving. He's not contradicting it. So Jesus is more than just Lord. He is God. Jesus is deity. Jesus agreed to it. Questions or comments? Okay, I think what we've done, we must have had in the two days here, eight or ten or twelve passages that just call Jesus God, clearly. So he really is. And I mentioned at least three reasons why we would want to study something like this. One, for our own edification, to learn what the Bible teaches. Two, because we won't always want to encourage personal work. And if you run into the Watchtower folks, which is, you're, down here we're not likely to run into the Christadelphians. There's not many in Alabama, but probably a lot more in Canada, I think. But you run into the Watchtower folks, they're very prevalent here. This could come up in personal work. Three, because showing from the Bible that Jesus is deity, I think, helps increase our appreciation for him. Therefore, if we have more, the more respect we can garner for him, appreciation, maybe perhaps more likely we are to respect and obey him. There is something I've heard in my boss colleagues, and they, they'll go as far as to give Jesus the fact that he's a good man. Well, good men don't go around and say they're God. If I were around saying I was God, he would not say, well, there's a good man. We call you a lunatic. Good men don't lie. Because it would be a lie. But, but they're calling them a liar. Now, I didn't get to assign you any homework for this because I really didn't think we were going to get to it. But I thought the moments we have left, we would talk about the Sola Scriptura. Since Bob mentioned that that would be a good thing to do with you guys, 
And I told him I'd do it if I had time because there's a lot of Catholics in your area, evidently. You used to be a Catholic? Did you used to be a Catholic? Okay. The uh, four subjects I've debated with the Catholics are Sola Scriptura, is the Bible our sole authority, transubstantiation. Y'all know what that is, right? You know what that is, Kevin? Okay. Original sin. Now, as opposed to the Calvinist, did you have a class with Bobby Graham this morning? Okay. He talks about total depravity. There's a little bit of difference in those, but, you know, in the tulip, they both fall into the T. The Calvinist tends to emphasize the total depravity. Okay, you're born in sin, and you don't have any possibility of choosing what's right. You're totally depraved. Well, the Catholic doesn't emphasize that part so much. He emphasizes the part about inheriting the sin from Adam. And the Catholics pretty much believe we have free will, like we believe we have free will. They don't emphasize the total depravity part. When I debated the guy and I mentioned total depravity, he would say he didn't believe that. Original sin, okay. But it still comes under the first point of Calvinism, even though it doesn't fit under T. Debated that, and then infant baptism. Remember we said that the Catholics, it makes sense to talk about those subjects together. And the Catholics are the only ones I know of that connect this. We have denominations that baptize infants, but they don't believe you have to be baptized to get your sins forgiven. So they do it for some other reason, Presbyterians and so forth. But the Catholics believe we need to we baptize for the remission of sins, and we need to do it to that baby. Because it has original sin, and when we baptize them, sprinkle them actually, then that original sin goes away and they can go to heaven. Right? Do y'all remember that being the case? But it also be baptized into the church. Into the church. Yeah. Okay. Alright. So it is a new old time and That's right. And you are introduced to the church. You are added to the church. Even at 25 days old? Correct. Let's look at transubstantiation very briefly. One chart. According to the Catholic Catechism, and when I quote anything on these charts other than the Bible, I think all my quotes other than the Bible are from Catholic-approved books. Because it wouldn't be an authority to quote a denominational preacher who was a Protestant against the Catholics. They might not. Okay. So only the Bible and, and Catholic-approved books. This is their catechism. Transubstantiation, this is their definition, indicates that through the consecration of the bread and wine, there occurs a change of the entire substance of the bread into the substance of the body of Christ, and of the entire substance of the wine into the blood of Christ. Even though, appear, even though the appearances of bread and wine remain. So when you ate the bread and wine, it still tasted like bread and wine. Did you guys ever drink the wine when you were Catholics? No. Just the bread. But you did both? We'll talk about that in a moment. That's interesting. But everybody turn to Matthew 26. There's two or three places they're going to get their position from. Matthew 26 is perhaps the most prominent. Because in Matthew 26, verse 26, he took bread, he blessed it, <clears throat> break it, gave the disciples, says, take eat, this is my body. And what they believe, Kevin, you probably already know this, but I know these guys believe this, is that when he blessed it, Y'all correct me if I'm wrong. When he did the prayer, that's when the transformation took place. Right? So when the priest blesses it, that's when it changes to the bread. So they say, look, Jesus said this is my body. And uh, as the other debater said, the Catholic debater says, you church of Christ just don't believe what the Bible says. It says this is my body. So it was his body. Y'all don't believe the Bible. And then, in verse 27, he took the cup and told him to drink all of it. He says, but this is my blood of the New Testament. He calls it my blood. And the Catholic debater you know, us Catholics, we believe what the Bible says. We believe it actually was the blood. All right? Now, I'm going to show you in a minute what I believe is going on here. I believe it's a metaphor. A metaphor. I can't pronounce it correctly. A metaphor. But I want to first show you 
that their position won't quite work before we talk about more about metaphor. First of all, all of Jesus' blood was still in his body at this point. And his body did not vanish. When he said, this is my body, this is my blood, all of his body and blood were still there in his body. Okay. Now, Matthew 26, verse 29, look at verse 28. He says, but this is my blood. Now, according to them, at that point, it is literally blood, right? Because it changed when he gave thanks for it in verse 27. But look at verse 29. After he says it's blood, he says, but I send you, I will not drink henceforth of this blood... Is that what he said? He calls it fruit of the vine. So we know it started as fruit of the vine. Catholics will agree with that. And they say it changed literally to blood when he gave thanks, because after he gave thanks, he says, this is, my, this is blood, my blood. But in verse 29, after that, after supposedly it changed, he called it fruit of the vine again. So I don't see how their position can be true. You either have one or two positions are true. One is if you take it all literally, as they think you ought to, then this fruit of vine literally changed to blood by the time you get to verse 28, when they gave thanks. And then by the time you get to verse 29, it changed literally back to fruit of the vine. Of course, they understand that doesn't make any sense. That's absurd. But that's one option. The other option is that Jesus is speaking metaphorically here when he says, this is my blood. Let's do the same thing with the, with the uh, bread and the body in 1 Corinthians 11. Turn to 1 Corinthians 11. Notice in verse 24, when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take eat, this is my body. So when he gave the thanks, the transformation, the transubstantiation took place, and it's literally his body at that point in verse 24. But notice after that what Jesus said in verse 26. He said, For as often as you eat my body, so he said, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you show the Lord's death when he comes. 27, whosoever shall eat this bread. You see that? Verse 28, let a man examine himself so he eat of that bread. Do you see, after he gave thanks for the bread, after he said, this is my body, he then three times here called it bread after that. Again, we make the argument that either literally it changed from bread, literally, to his body, and literally back to bread, or when he said it's my body, he's speaking metaphorically. Y'all follow the argument? Let's talk about what a metaphor is. Out of the dictionary, this is a figure of speech in which one object is likened to another by asserting it to be that other or speaking of it as if it were that other. I'm trying to remember back in my English days, uh, there's a simile and a metaphor. One of them is when you say this is like this, and one of them is when you say this is this. I guess the metaphors when, metaphor when you say this is this. But it, they mean the same thing. You're really saying this is like this. Suppose I had a picture of my mother on the wall. Well, or, and I said, this is my mother. Well, nobody would think I meant this is literally my mother, right? But it's a picture of my mother. It's a likeness of my mother. We just feel like people know enough we don't have to say that every time. Let's look at some metaphors, how Jesus used them in the Bible. In John 6, Jesus said, I am that bread. Does that mean Jesus' body changed to bread here? In the Lord's Supper passages, we have bread changing his, into his body, but according to their reasoning, his body changed to bread here. I am the door of the sheep. Does that mean Jesus' body changed to wood and hinges? Or is it a metaphor? I am the true vine, John 15, 1. Does that mean Jesus' body changed to a literal plant? Go ye and tell that fox, referring to Herod, 
Did Herod literally change to a fox? No. The Catholics would agree that all of these are metaphors. And I think this reasoning right here proves that it was a metaphor. Has to be. Questions or comments? Let's spend the rest of our time talking about, I'm sorry I didn't have questions for y'all, probably I could send it to your email address this last night. Let's talk about Sola Scriptura. Is the Bible our sole authority? Now, our position is there is only one standard of authority, God's Word, but you can't just say God's Word, because when you say God's Word to them, Kevin, they don't think of the Bible alone. They think of the Bible, the Scriptures, plus any other way God gives His Word. And they have three legs of authority. They, they, they use the analogy of a stool with three legs. And if you chopped off one of those legs, it would fall over. You need, and they say, so you need all three of them. One is the Scriptures. They use the term Scriptures, and they, they mean by that the written Word of God, because if you just say Word of God, you might mean the Scriptures, the written Word of God, or oral Word of God, which would come through the Catholic leadership, for example, through the Pope. Uh, what's it called? Um, why is it escaping me now? <laughs> the Pope, Pope speaks ex cathedra. For example, if he went to an Alabama football game and said, well, I think Alabama's going to win this game. They don't think he's inspired when he says that. But when he speaks from the seat, ex cathedra, on matters of faith, and this may only happen once every 20 years, I don't know, once every 50 years. Do you guys know how often he does that? Then he says, I'm speaking from the seat. In other words, from his position as the Pope, the head of the church, then he is inspired, just like Jesus and Paul were inspired. Do you follow what I'm saying? So the other leg of authority here is church leadership. The, the guy I debated, the Catholic, called it the magisterium. I think he means by that it's not just the Pope, but also the Cardinals. But they don't have this ex-cathedra thing, but they're involved in that. And then Catholic church tradition is another one. You have to have all three legs. And if you take one of the legs out, you're incomplete. The stool will fall over. All right? So they believe in the three legs. And, of course, I'm trying to prove, prove Sola Scriptura, which is just Latin to mean the, the Scriptures are our sole authority. So what I want to do is show some passages from the Bible that the Bible is the only thing, and then what I might do is I want to attack these. Okay? Because if, 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 he, if he agreed there are only three things that provide our religious authority, three things, one thing I can do is if I attack these and show this one and this one are no good, that's one way, maybe indirectly, of getting around to the fact there's only one. If they admit there are three, but you can attack two and knock them down, then you've only left one. You follow what I'm saying? So I'm going to do both of those. This would be the, the first passage I, I would usually turn to in the debate. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All, read that for us. It's up there on the, on the screen for us. But All scripture is good by the grace of God and is profitable for God, for reproof, for correction, for instruction of grace. I want us to focus in on the word perfect, truly, or some of the translations say it's interesting that some King James has truly, some have thoroughly. <laughs> There's a little bit of difference there, but not in meaning. All good works. So my opponent's view is that the scripture is given that the man of God may be almost perfect, partially, instead of thoroughly, furnished unto most good works, instead of the all good works. All Scripture, that would be the Old Testament and New Testament completed. We're not talking about when the halfway, when the New Testament Scriptures were halfway written. We're not talking about they were not complete at that point. 
Okay, you needed all of them. When the Old Testament and New Testament were completed, all Scripture, we're talking about something written here. Scripture, they will admit. Not tradition or doctrines revealed by the Pope. It makes the man of God perfect. And that is, as opposed to the Greek word here, many times instead of meaning without blemish or sinless, it means complete, not lacking anything. So this will make the man of God perfect. That means he'll have everything he needs. Thoroughly furnished, not partially furnished. We don't need the tradition and the Pope. They're not needed. If the scriptures only partially furnished us into all good works, then we'd need something else. And then unto all good works, not just some of the good works, and then other sources uh, then do not, uh, so others, and then other sources giving us, or revealing unto us other needed good works that we don't have from the Bible. The scriptures make us perfect, thoroughly furnish us into all good works. It seems to me that verse 17 is telling us that the scriptures provide everything that we need, and we don't need anything else. Arguments or questions? Do you remember I said that the Pope, they believe, now the history of the matter is this, really, on on the Pope speaking ex cathedra, this thing about ex cathedra, the Pope being infallible, they did not always believe this. This guy, we all know who Alexander Campbell is, and he had some very famous debates in his day. He debated a Catholic named Archbishop Purcell, in Cincinnati in 1837. And here's what uh, Mr. Purcell said. He's a bishop, which is a high-up guy in the Catholic Church. Maybe he's over a whole state or maybe a region of states, you know. He says the bishop of Rome, he's referring to the Pope there, though he was not believed to be infallible, neither is he now. No enlightened Catholic holds the Pope's infallibility to be an article of faith. I do not, and none of my brethren that I know of do. The Catholic believes the Pope to be as liable to error as almost any other man in the universe. Man is man and no man is infallible, either in doctrine or morals. In 1837, they had one of those conferences where they decided what the true doctrine is and they declared the Pope was infallible when he speaks ex cathedra from the sea. Before that, they didn't believe that, and this was in a debate with Campbell when this bishop said he's not infallible. But since 1870, they've been saying he's infallible. So if the Pope decided to speak, I don't know if he's done this, ex cathedra and tell us whether abortion was right or not, and then he said it's wrong, of course I would agree with him, then all of the Popes would be bound and obligated to follow that. Of course, most of them wouldn't follow it, but that's still. It'd be just like God had said it if he spoke ex cathedra. <clears throat> now, I want to show you a chart here. Oh, yeah. In the, uh, uh, what I understand from Mormons, there was something called Great Disappointment, where something was prophesied and it didn't happen. And it was clear that it was prophesied, it was clear that it didn't happen, so I gave the name that went on, as opposed to concluding that this, this proof is being prophet. Is there some article of fallibility that a pope in the last century has done or said that is clearly wrong? Okay, I, I didn't have a plan on I'll show you something in a minute. No. On the Great Disappointment, I think that's referring to what the Millerites, not the Mormons, but I may be wrong about that, but in 1874, this guy named Miller said it was before that. The world is going to end in 1874, and a bunch of his followers went out and just sold everything they had and waited, and it didn't happen. And it was a great disappointment, as Kevin said. And then from those, some of the, a lot of those people just kind of left and quit following, maybe even believing the Bible at all. But from that, the witnesses came, the Seth Baptists came, uh, so, 
Let me mention one or two of those things in a minute, Kevin. Let me show you the uh, what I was going to... I'll just go ahead and do that. Then we'll get to this quote. And that was on geocentrism. Um, here's one that's kind of like that. Bob Stingenis is a famous Catholic apologist now. He goes around and debates for the Catholic faith. What is geocentrism? That is this idea that... Uh, is that all of the universe revolves around the Earth instead of the solar system revolving around the sun. And that's what was believed until Galileo, I guess, by most people. But so at the, the Catholics, when Galileo came out and said we all revolve around the sun, they thought that somehow degraded God, that he would not make the Earth the center of the universe. And so they condemned him as a heretic. So Bob Genesis. He's loyal to the Catholic Church, and so it's kind of like we would do with creationism and evolution. He says, in spite of all the science that says it goes around the sun, he says, no, the Catholic Church says it goes around the earth, way back yonder, so I believe that. He says, I didn't say geocentrism is officially taught by the church. I said it was officially taught by the church. It is a fact of ecclesiastical history that these popes all condemn the notion that the sun is the center about which the earth revolves, and the heir and heresy of the movement of the earth. Alexander VII actually signed a papal bull, blah, 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 which was attached to the index of forbidden books, stating that he condemned all books which affirmed the motion of the earth. See, they were saying the, motion, the earth just stayed still and everything went around it. Binding the consciences of the faithful. This information is not hard to find. Anyone who wants to be an honest Catholic has to admit it. So I'm not sure if this answers Kevin's question, but all these posts said, no, this is first coming out by Galileo, no, no, the earth is the center of the universe, it doesn't move, everything goes around it, and they were condemning, and they, they excommunicated Galileo because of this, said he's a heretic. Now, of course, the Catholic Church, they know the science, and they say, yeah, you know, it all goes around the sun, but Bob Genesis is saying, look, the Catholic Church used to say, including these popes, that the earth was the center, and so Genesis then, he's condemned, you know, criticizing his modern-day Catholics and saying, you shouldn't be saying this. The Catholic Church should stick to its guns and say the earth is the city. But maybe that's an example of what Kevin was talking about. Yeah, I think we're looking at it yesterday, maybe Deuteronomy 18. If it doesn't come true... So they said that geocentrism was the true sign, and they were wrong. How about this? Look at this. This is Pope Adrian VI. He was around in about 1522. Now, I don't think they'll be interested, but I actually have... Well, I'll just show it to you briefly if I can find it. I actually have this in the Latin. If somebody wants to look at it. Here's the Latin from this thing. And down here, there's the quote. It comes from here and there. And this is a transliteration of it. A transliteration by some guy. I got to transliterate, but I can't read that either. Okay? This is what the Pope said. I got the Latin and a transliteration. Now, here's what he said translated. Adrian VI said this in 1522. Now, remember, the Catholic Church didn't have this ex-cathedra thing until 1870. Now, they'll claim now, oh, it was true all along. But really, in that conference in 1870 is when they said the Pope, when he speaks ex-cathedra, is infallible. 
But notice what Adrian VI said. He said, if by the Roman Church you mean it's head or pontiff, that's the Pope, it is beyond question that he can err even in matters touching the faith. He does this when he teaches heresy by his own judgment or decretal. In truth, many Roman pontiffs were heretics. The last of them was Pope John the 22nd in 1316 through 1334. So remember, when the Pope speaks about matters of faith, ex cathedra, he cannot be wrong. He's infallible. Not about Alabama football or anything. All right. But notice what he said. He can err even in matters touching the faith. And, he went, and this is also, it is certain that the Pope may err in matters of faith. Now, we've only got two options. Either this Pope, Adrian VI, was right or wrong. He said the Pope can err in matters of faith. If he was right, then the Pope is fallible, right? Because he's saying the Pope is fallible. If he was wrong, then the Pope is fallible because he was wrong, right? You've only got one of two choices. They're saying that the Pope is always right and infallible in matters of faith, but we have a Pope that says Popes can err in matters of faith. Okay. Now, remember I said I wanted to attack the other two legs of authority. Let's do that real briefly. That actually attacks the Pope, I believe. Let's talk quickly about the frequency of communion. Now, before we talk about that, I want you to notice this quote from a Cardinal Gibbons. Okay? Cardinal Gibbons was a very high a, a Catholic. A Cardinal, I think, is even higher than a bishop, right? Very high. Gibbons. <clears throat> this is from a book he wrote. Not, it is from a book. I can't be sure he's the author. Page 74, but the quote is from him. He says, if, in, if only one instance could be given in which the church ceased to teach a doctrine of faith, which had been previously held, that single instance would be the death blow of her claims of infallibility. Well, you see the logic there. If we say we're infallible and we say this, and then we come along later and say we're infallible but we say this and this is different than that, then that would be a death blow of infallibility. Infallibility, by definition, doesn't contradict itself, right? All right? So Cardinal Gibbons agrees with that. If you can show where they've changed on the doctrine of faith, then you've destroyed the idea of infallibility, right? Remember, that's one of their legs of authority, is the fallibility of the Pope. So we know what the Bible says on the frequency of communion. Upon the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul preached unto them once a week, all right? Notice, again, this is from a Catholic book. Anything on here is either from the Bible or from a Catholic-approved book. It said, this is from uh, the legislation on the sacraments in the New Code of Canon Law, page 87. Here's what they said, this Catholic book. In the beginning, Mass, that's the Lord's Supper, communion, was celebrated only once a week. <clears throat> well, they're right about that, I think. Then three or four times, and finally, in the 5th or 6th century, every day. We had a football coach here before at Alabama before. This one, Mike Shula, who was a good Catholic, and I understood he used to go to Mass practically every day. That's what the, Catholic, the very good Catholics do. He's saying it originally was once a week, then three or four times a week, and finally it got to be every day. You see how they changed? They changed from what it was in the beginning, and Cardinal Gibbons says if you change in a matter of faith, that destroys infallibility. <coughs> Y'all see the point? Let's look at another one that's like that, the mode of baptism. All of these are from the point, how can the Catholic Church be authoritative if its teaching changes? The changing standard of authority is no standard at all if it changes. We see that from the Mormons and the Watchtower folks when they get new light, new revelation. 
And we say, how can these people just accept this? How can it be a standard if it's changing? Let's look what the Bible says first. We all know that. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism. The actual meaning of the Greek word is immersion. According to Thayer, it means to emerge or submerge. Wide and green to immerse. Now let's look at the adult catechism. You guys will recognize that as authoritative if it's a catechism, right? Baptism used to be given by placing the person to be baptized completely in the water. It was done in this way in the Catholic Church for 1,200 years. That's what the Catholics say. It used to be that way. Our faith and the fact, another Catholic book, page 399, the church at one time practiced immersion. This was up to the 13th century. <clears throat> that agrees with that. The Council of Ravenna in 1311 changed the form from immersion to pouring. And then the new interpretation of the Mass, page 120, baptism took by, place by immersion in ancient times. So to analyze those quotes, Catholic Facts, page 27, if it be not identical in belief, this is Catholic, in government with the primitive church, then it is not the church of Christ. Well, is it identical? By their own admission, is it identical? No, they're saying it used to be immersion, and now we changed it to sprinkling in 1311. And of course, we know that when they start out with immersion, that was correct. If it's not identical, this is what the Catholics say, then it's not the primitive church. It's not the church of Christ. By their own admission, then. Not the beginning. Well, this is really talking about uh, the mode of baptism. They could have immersed infants back then. I'm not sure when infant baptism started. There are some people today, it's kind of rare, that immerse infants. The Greek Orthodox Church, maybe? I'm not sure if it's them, but there are some churches that practice infant baptism and it's immersion. I know that would be kind of, you get sure you get some crying there, but they do it. And the baby survived. And then you mentioned about how that when you took communion in the Catholic Church, you ate and drank, and where you did it, you only ate. All right. Kevin, they call that communion under both kinds when they say you, you, the laity eats the bread and drinks the fruit of the vine, as opposed to, I guess it would be called communion under one kind if you only got to do one. We know from the Bible, as they call it, their term, communion under both kinds is the scriptural way. First Corinthians 11, 26 and 28, for as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he comes. Not just the clergy, not just the priest, but he's talking to all the Christians. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. Notice what the Catholic authorities say. Catholic Encyclopedia, communion under both kinds was the prevailing usage in apostolic times. They're saying in apostolic times, the Christians ate the bread and drank the fruit of the vine. Catholic Dictionary. Pope Leo and Galatius emphatically condemned persons who abstained from the chalice. In other words, didn't drink the fruit of the vine. Then the lives and times of the Roman pontiff, communion under both kinds was abolished in 1416 by the Council of Constance. So from 1416 on, then the laity did not drink the fruit of the vine. Who knows why they did that? Why they changed it and didn't let them drink? Because remember, it changes to the literal blood of Christ, and they were scared in passing that cup to the laity that they might spill it, and that would be spilling the blood of Christ. So because of that, they said, let's not do that anymore. Let's not pass that. That's why when they sent that little wafer, didn't they stick it on your tongue to try to avoid dropping it, right? 
<coughs> now, my opponent, I got confused on this a little bit. My opponent tells me that the Catholic Church has changed again and currently allows the laity to drink from the fruit of the vine. I've since learned more about that. You have some Catholics who say we, we should do it, they're very insistent we should do it the old way. And they keep, they want the masses to stay in Latin, even here in America. Nobody can understand, most people can't understand it except the clergy. And then you have the more modern class, uh, Catholics who say, now we can do it in English, and we can go back to getting the fruit of the vine. But remember, according to Cardinal Gibbons, change is the death blow to infallibility, and they change. They started out with the right way, then they absolutely condemn that, even though these guys condemned anybody who came from the chalice, but then in 1416 they said, we're not going to do it anymore. So none of the Catholics for hundreds of years drank the fruit of the vine except the priests. They would have been condemned by popes, these two popes. And now they're in the process of changing back. And Gibbon says, when you change the matters of faith, that's the death blow infallibility. Questions or comments? The, uh, this is just a, a mean of practicality. If the group is too big, you want to Even today? Because it takes too long or it's too much, too likely to spill? The group is smaller than those. But these popes said, if you don't do it, you're condemned. There's the man. Now, we talked about, I think it was the Watchtower folks. And Eric will talk about the theocratic war or something. Yeah. And how you can lie if you talk to a person that's not a follower of the Lord God. It's okay to lie to them. You know, the Catholics do something like that. The Bible says in Revelation 21, verse 8, first of all, the unbelieving murderers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone. So we all teach and believe, and I'm, I'm, maybe Greg said something the same about the Mormons too, I don't remember. It's wrong to lie though. But notice the Catholic Encyclopedia. A false statement knowingly made to one who has not a right to the truth will not be a lie. This, this is Catholic Encyclopedia Volume 10, 195. This is their book, not, you know, denominational, the Protestants that make this up. This is the Catholics. We are under an obligation to keep secrets faithfully, and sometimes the easiest way of fulfilling that duty is to say what is false or to tell a lie. So in debate, I say to the Catholics that are there at the debate, how, and remember, the three legs of authority, the scripture and the church, can basically sum up the other two. How can you trust someone in the church, for example, Catholic? How can you trust them for the truth when they don't think the truth is important and admit they will tell lies if it furthers their goals and purposes? How can that be one of the legs of authority if they admit they could lie to you? Who they answer that? As I told you all the first day, they don't usually get around to responding to the argument. By its own admission, Catholicism cannot be trusted. <clears throat> I think there may have been one. For example, they said something like this. <clears throat> Suppose, Pat, you were in the day of the Holocaust, and they asked you if, you, if maybe you were protecting a Jew, came to your house, and you said, is there a Jew in there? You, wouldn't you tell them no? You know, so they, they justified it based upon a real emotional situation. Yeah, there's a big difference there between, okay, I am lying, and saying, well, what I said is not a lie. You know, I did lie. But what they're doing is, well, no, that's not a lie. It, they're saying it's the truth when it's not. Well, they're lying twice. One last passage. Revelation 20, 12. And I saw a great white throne and him that sat on it. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. I think I want to turn and read this whole thing. So I run out of room on my chart, so I skipped some of the words. 
And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were open. And another book was open, which is the book of life. So the book of life has got the names of all the saved people in it. And then it says, uh, the books were open. It says, the dead were judged out of those things which are written in the books according to their works. My conclusion would be, and I think the Catholics would agree, that's the books of the Bible. You're going to be judged. There's the book of life here, and then there are books you're going to be judged out of, based upon. So that would be like God on the judgment day comparing your life to the books of the Bible. So on the judgment day, our personal works will be compared to the laws written in the books, the books of the Bible. We are going to be judged by things written then in the Bible, not by Catholic Church tradition, not by what the Pope and the Cardinals say. Sola Scriptura. Second Timothy three, sixteen and seventeen, I believe. Make sure that clearly also. Any other questions or comments? Yes. Uh, of course, what they would say about that, about that, and uh, I think that's John twelve forty eight. You got that? We're going to be judged by Jesus' words, but it doesn't say written. So you get Jesus' words through the Scripture. That's the written through the Pope and the Magisterium and through church tradition. That's how you get the Word of God. Questions? Any more before we quit?